Island, Asian American Pacific Islander month. Yeah. And I don't know if you've been seeing, but we have these rotating billboards in Baltimore that yes. like feature different women. Mm-hmm. And I have a little gripe to. Oh <laughs> no! With this. Which one? What thing? So they put one up about Mindy Kaling, and they just put that she was a content creator. And I was like, that makes her sound like an Instagram influencer. I was like, she was like one of the head writers on The Office. She's a she's a showrunner. She's a showrunner. <laughs> she's an author. Like she wrote a book. She wrote a memoir. She. Like you're saying, she made her own show, The Mindy Project. Yeah. Don't you feel like that's like a little like, that's, content creator seems lackluster for all of her accomplishments. I think content creator is the wrong adjective. Yes. And like, I, or like the wrong way to describe what she does. Like, because I don't think being a content creator should be like looked down upon. No, it's not. It's not what she does. It's not what Mindy Kaylee does. Again, it sounds like someone who and like there are some really cool content creators that do really neat stuff online but i just think that that's not exactly what she does no like, it isn't that was a, i don't know who made that billboard but was, yeah, it, but it, was it michael scott yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's been bothering me because i know that she's talked about how for years people didn't give her credit for writing episodes on the office oh and yeah people make fun of her jokes. on twitter yeah and they're like oh like you know she's just kelly kapoor and she's like Okay, also, I was acting in the show the entire time. I was also writing episodes and, like, things like that. And like, Or people make fun of her, and then they'll post, like, a gif of the show, and she'll be <laughs> like, like, I, I wrote, wrote that, that scene. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote that scene, and you're using it against me, you dumbass. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. Just a big shout-out to Mindy Kaling, because I just... I see all the good things that you've done and people should be appreciating it. I also just, <laughs> I want an elevator pitch. I want everybody to have an elevator pitch fully available so that I know what people want me to say about them. Cause like I am for like, for our friend who has a documentary coming out in July. If you're in the area, July 16th, you can get tickets on ridgearmy.com. We would love you to come. Um, but, and I'm in it. Yeah. And Allie's- so's, so's producer, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I just like, I'm writing some of the posts for his Instagram mm-hmm. and I just, there's some people that like, I'm not as close with that. I'm yeah. like, how do you want me to describe you? So I'm having yeah. to like message them on Facebook and be like, can you give me like a rundown of your life? I know I've been drinking in bars with you for like yeah. 13 years. <laughs> I don't know anything about it's you. It's like everybody's Chandler Bing all of a sudden. You're like, what do you do? What is your actual <laughs> job? Yeah. That's what I'm doing now. So that's been fun, but we're Perfect. not here to talk about about our friends documentary although we're gonna push it every week from now on absolutely until july uh, no we're here to talk about herstory on the rocks with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women and alphabetical women this season yes. from all times and places <laughs> because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we are absolutely not historians no not even close and we've already started drinking tonight so yeah, we had a great Great interview. So we are flying high. We also got great messages this week. One from Mora oh, on Maura. Instagram, which was so sweet. She requested two more people that Perfect. went on the list and told us how much she loved us. And then also one from Vero, another longtime listener, oh. sent us a message on Facebook, told us lots of lovely things. So Speaking of billboards, there's one that says Vero uses this banking oh, app. Oh, yes, there Your is. Your name is on a billboard in Baltimore. Yeah. I don't know if you know this. But. I think it's you. I think it's you. We think about it all the time. I do. 
Um, but you're busy driving down the street looking at the billboards where you are. Some of them yeah. are appealing. Yep. Some of them are brand new. Some of them are digital. And some of them are the joke where they try to have things poking up. But oh, it just looks like shit from the other it side. It looks insane from the <laughs> other side. Don't do that. Um, so you're busy. You can't take your eyes off the billboards and the road. So don't look at your phone to Google the, what these women look like. Because we're going to describe them for you. So right. don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical. Physical. Allie, who is your person and what do they look like? I'm doing Marie Stopes Ooh. tonight. Is it S-T-O-P-E-S? Yes. Okay. And she has a very thin oval face with a prominent nose and like a very long, thin neck. She wore her hair up, but it kind of poofs out in the front around uh-huh. her face and forehead. Yeah. Forehead. Like it has a lot of volume yeah. <laughs> in the front. She loved to look like a dancer and always tried to look like one, but not like an, in an uptight way. Hmm. Like she has this very serious face, but her clothing is kind of layered and nonsensical and like flowing. I just feel like she jumped out of bed and threw on anything that was there, but she doesn't look sloppy. She just yeah. kind of looks like Professor Trelawney. Okay. She's like, I am busy. Yeah. Like busy and like that. I don't know. It's so crazy. <laughs> like all of her clothes. I'm like, what is that ensemble? Very interesting. But um, that's what Maurice okay. looks like. <laughs> I am doing Noor Iniat Khan. Um, That's a request, yeah? It is from Shopper Girl 2010. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, She was a petite woman who was half Indian and half American. She had a long oval face with wide set eyes and a very soft smile. Her hair was usually parted down the middle and then pulled back with a little hair still framing her face, like very 1940s. Uh, But when she was a younger child, she could typically be seen wearing a sari, especially while performing music. Uh, But in her older years, she was typically seen in her military uniform. Oh. And that's what she looked like. Interesting. (laughs) Can't wait to find out more. So do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks so refreshing on this very hot day. Well, I knew it was going to be hot. So I made an... Uh, white sangria. We've Ooh. done a lot of red sangrias. Yeah. Not as many white ones. And I let it steep overnight. Mm. It's just a crisp white wine mixed with a honey bourbon. Ooh. And then I added limes, lemon, a little bit of sugar, green apple, and peach. Ah, delightful. Ooh, I'm caught in a wire. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. That is delicious. It's really good. And I do feel like Letting a sangria sit is very important because I often do not do that. <laughs> yeah. I think starting the day ahead on sangria, if, if it's a last minute call, that's fine. But letting the fruit actually mm. like seep into the wine is so important. And then you can eat the fruit and have bonus drinks. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So what do you know about Marie Stopes? I don't know anything okay. i feel like you said earlier that she was like a researcher or something or a scientist or a doctor mm-hmm. i don't know i think i was googling the wrong person this oh. week i think i was googling marie stokes oh yeah there's a p so there i did not know there was a p so mm-hmm. now i have no idea who this person is so i'm excited to learn <laughs> yeah she's really interesting because she always comes up on the list of like the most famous women but there aren't a lot of sources about her. 
And it's because she has a lot of controversial opinions that both the right and left don't agree with. Interesting. So I think a lot of people don't want to praise her as like a heroine because of that. So it was actually hard to find a lot of things about her personal life. I could find like basic details like Wikipedia had it. YouTube had basic videos. Like Mm -hmm. there were several, several like foreign language podcasts I couldn't get a hold of. But there was one podcast that I've never heard of before that did a really great job and i'm promo them more later but it's called dig a history podcast i've listened to them i've, I've used them as a source them. they're well, so good i've never listened and it was so so helpful because mm-hmm. it was just straightforward yeah that's the best and i used a ton of wikipedia <laughs> and then, i mean i read britannica and like mm-hmm. all the other things that you're supposed to read every week but <laughs> okay marie and some people said marie to the point that it sounded like mary they were like Marie, oh. but I'm just going to say Marie because okay. she's British. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So Marie Stopes is one of the most significant women in the birth control movement of all time. Hmm. But it, her story did not start or end like that. So Marie was born in Edinburgh, England. Her dad was Henry Stopes. He was a brewer, an engineer, an architect, a philanthropist. So she's not poor to say the least. Yeah. Her mom was Charlotte Stopes. She was a Shakespearean scholar and women's rights campaigner. Very interesting. Very cool. Very interesting. Within the first couple weeks of her life, they moved to Scotland and then they moved to London. Both of her parents are members of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, where they had met originally. Mm. And at an early age, she's exposed to like some pretty famous scholars. Mm-hmm. To say the least, she is a very privileged british woman she doesn't have a title or anything but she has a lot in terms of education she's homeschooled at first then she attended saint george's school for girls and then the north london collegiate school she primarily focused on science in her 20s and 30s marie attended the university of london in 1900 as a scholarship student in 1900 a woman That's wild. Where she studied botany and geology. She was very headstrong and often the only woman in the room when women were not welcome in places like this. Mm -hmm. She graduated with her bachelor's in only two years. Wow. Attending day classes and night classes. She's very smart. And then immediately after that, her father died, leaving their family in financial ruin. So her paleobotany professor dr francis oliver took her under his wing and hired her as a research assistant dr oliver was on the he was like a leading paleobotany right scientist he's on the verge of the most important discovery of like the 21st mm. century when he takes her on so she went to school for botany, but he studies paleobotany, which is like looking at fossils of plants. Oh, so it's like, you know, okay. when you're at a science center and there's like imprints yeah. of ferns on rocks, mm-hmm. like that's what she did. Interesting. So you might be able to explain this because you're a houseplant guru. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, fer- ferns don't have seeds. They have fronds mm-hmm. and then there's seed plants. Mm-hmm. And even Einstein, not Einstein, Darwin, <laughs> same deal. Even Darwin originally called this an abominable mystery. Like he didn't understand 
what was the link between fern and seed plants in evolution like couldn't figure it out so that is what she is helping research and she actually finds and discovers the ferns that bore seeds <gasps> in these fossils oh that's so cool in her 20s oh my god <laughs> that's crazy like obviously she's the research assistant so it's not like credited with her name right but like that's the first research project she's a part of oh very cool which i, like I don't that. understand yeah <laughs> i mean i just spent a lot of money on two boston ferns too much i just had that I, one fern <laughs> i read the price backwards <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I really did. It was really embarrassing. And then you couldn't turn away once you're at the cash register? Yeah, because I thought they were $23 a piece and they were 32 which Yikes. I would never pay that much for. But no. I did. And I'm trying desperately to keep them alive. What but kind of fern is that that I have in my kitchen? That big crazy That's Boston one. fern. Mm -hmm. That was $17. <sighs> it was a giant though, so it probably will die soon. Yeah. It wasn't at like a plant store. I mean, mine was at Lowe's, so it's oh, probably okay. got the same chances. Got it, got it, got it. <laughs> okay. So she then, after her bachelor's, wins this scholarship to the University College in London to work on a doctoral degree. She ends up very quickly receiving her doctorate of science. So this is not a PhD. She goes on to okay. also get a PhD. Mm -hmm. This is a doctorate of science. And she became the youngest person in Britain to get one from that university. Wow. Not female, just youngest person. Wow. Right after that, she did some post-grad work studying some dried up riverbeds and then like the Royal Botanical Gardens. I don't know how she's getting the rights to go into all these places, right. but she just is. And she uses her scholarship money to fund like research on the reproduction of plants and then writes her dissertation for her PhD. She presents her dissertation and then gets a PhD in botany like wow. right after, like in the same two years. Also interesting, this was from the University of Munich, and she had to deliver her entire dissertation in German, which she had just learned because they wouldn't let her in. And they said it's because she didn't know German, but it was really because she was a woman. Uh, so she learned German God, to I go to the university. A petty bitch. I know. <laughs> She's like, oh, I'll fucking learn German. Oh my gosh. I'm coming to learn school. it out of spite. <laughs> So, you're looking for Duolingo tips. That's the best way to learn German. <laughs> Just get some spite. spite. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the spite league. <laughs> I'm in Pearl. Just saying. Oh, stop. <laughs> um, okay. So she became one of the, after this, one of the first women elected to the, like a society in London that made you allowed to demonstrate, which means like teach your skill. So now oh. she's a woman who's allowed to teach botany to like men. Very cool. Which is very weird because this is all done before she turns 23. She's not even 23 so yet. That's little. why this is so quick in oh the beginning God. of the story. She's 23. She finally secures a full-time job as a lecturer in paleobotany at the Victoria University of Manchester, becoming the first female academic at the university. And then one of her father's friends is like constantly advocating for her, like, no, let her be here because people hated it. Um, but she couldn't just be all normal. <laughs> she was known as quite a campus partier really big partier she loved to socialize freely with staff with colleagues with students remember she's 23 years old and she gets a reputation as quite a 
flirt. <laughs> and that little sexy flirtatious vibe follows her through her life. During her time at Manchester, she starts to study coal, like the stuff you hmm. burn. Okay. Which is interesting. Fine. We'll get more to, we'll get back on coal later. Hmm. And she also researches this collection of seed ferns. She met this Arctic explorer when she's out like partying and says he was this really great dancer, but she doesn't have any like loving feelings for him mm -hmm. like romantic feelings she just wants to like get with him to go to antarctica she tries to set that up but he has to leave for this expedition and he doesn't have time to petition for women to come with him so he has to go without her and he's like listen i'll try to bring back some fossilized plants for you <laughs> uh, so that you can write a paper or something um because she's obsessed with pangea right now and proving, oh yeah proving that pangea existed so mm -hmm. she's like when mm -hmm. you're in antarctica same find me some rocks baby yeah <laughs> And he's like, got it. I got you. Got it. <laughs> well, he dies on that expedition, but they no. do find fossilized plants next to his body. No way. He and is bringing them Pangea. Back. Like it was some missing links in the Pangea. Really? Thing. Yeah. Wow. But they never got back to her. Oh, so she doesn't lame. get any credit for it. That's dumb. Yeah. Well, sign some paperwork before you go. <laughs> she did a lot of research, though, on coal, but not just coal, coal balls. I've never heard of a coal ball. Nope. But apparently it is a spherical ball of coal that formed like millions of years ago in some geological period that I didn't write down the name. Uh -huh. And she discovered how they formed in swamps and rivers and whatnot. And then showcased it at a conference. And then everybody was like, that's bullshit. Turned out she was right. Oh, my God. And she figured out how these coal balls were made. Okay. Here's what I'm going to say. I don't understand her. <laughs> I don't understand how you're just like, I'm going to figure out how this was made. I'm sure every scientist is like, oh, scientific process, obviously. <laughs> I don't understand. What's your hypothesis? Wait, you <laughs> cut it open and look at the mall. I don't understand. How, how is it made? What does that I mean? I don't know. I don't either. I couldn't like... <laughs> I couldn't even really describe to you how bread is made. <laughs> like, and I've done it. I can see it. Do we have any geologists listening to the show? don't understand science it's one thing to be like that's a fern and look yeah. there's an imprint of a seed next to it right and another thing to be like yeah. how was that coal ball made <laughs> i don't i don't know you out of look, my depth. everybody should stop out and look up depth. pictures of coal balls and then bring them up at dinner because it's the craziest <laughs> thing i don't right even now. it's just a ball of coal i don't know it's very very weird anyway this eventually became one of, like, the greatest contributions to the field of coal. <laughs> wow. I don't even understand that. How do you go from paleobotany to coal botany? I Coalogy. don't know. Okay, it looks like a musket ball. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought it but, was. But, like, look. it's very weird. Yeah, it's exactly what it looks like. like okay. little briquettes. <laughs> <laughs> so she's expanding her research to include coal from the Mesozoic era. Whoa. Now. Hold your horses. Which was important because there weren't a lot of fossils from that era. So she's like, I got to go to India. I got to go to Japan. But there's like a Jurassic era coast in Scotland. And she's like, that's kind of closer. So she goes <laughs> to Scotland, does some research, comes home, writes it up. She's like, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to write my stuff down. And then she gets the call from Japan. And they're like, Grant approved. Mm. Get your best ass over here. Mm -hmm. Study our coal balls. And she's like, 
cool because she wasn't just going over there to study coal balls. She met this guy at the University of Munich, this Japanese guy, and she's like, I'm going to go to Japan. This is going to be the love of my life. We're going to have a blast. Whoa. They're over there researching coal balls together. She's the supervisor. She has 30 men working under oh my her God. in like 1907. <laughs> what? Yeah. That's crazy. Um, And she's making all kinds of discoveries, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, like, this guy cools on the relationship. He's, like, chills to her. And he's mm. like, I don't know what this bitch is about. And then lies and says he has leprosy. <laughs> from her. Katie, leprosy. Leprosy. I want that excuse. Sorry, babe. Uh, you I know got what? leprosy. <laughs> and I would bet, because it would be so much easier to say, like, syphilis. But he didn't want because you can't see syphilis, uh-huh. and I or like whatever. And I bet he was like, "Well," and he didn't want the gonna, stigma of maybe like an STD. So I like leprosy. That leprosy is better than an STD. I guess that's out. Somebody tell me if you've ever pretended to have leprosy to get out of a date <laughs> <laughs> because this guy did. But anyway, she gets back, publishes a whole bunch of studies, and then um, writes a book about the daily her daily life in Japan. Anyway. During her life and her writing, she became acquainted with many famous writers. So I just want to bring it up now because I'm not going to talk about everything she wrote. But she mm-hmm. wrote not only books about science, but poems, hmm. plays, novels. Her first is called Our Ostriches. And it is about society's approach to working class women being forced to produce babies, which she knows nothing about because she's not a fucking working class woman. Right, And then she like... That play ran for like three months and it replaced a play that she had written previously about her first marriage, which is scandalous, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, And that had to deal with themes on sex and impotence. Hmm. But that got denied its license. So she just printed it and published it as a pamphlet or whatever. (laughs) Anyway, she later said that when she did eventually marry, which we'll talk about this guy in a minute, just like your grandmother, she knew very little about marriage or sex. Oh. And it ends up turning off her love of science and her goal becomes to educate women about sex and marriage. Very interesting. Total shift. New woman, new life. New year, new you, girl. Starting it's over. also fascinating to me just because you described her as this partier, very flirtatious. And I think that that points to like a lot of things that like young women go to about like, I know that I'm doing this. I know that it feels good, but I don't know the mechanics of it. And I'm afraid to ask. Like, (laughs) who do you ask? Who do you ask? Yeah. Especially back then. Yeah. This is Victorian era England. Yeah. Oh God. That's so hard. She's lost. (gasps) Okay. So it's 1910. She's on this study in Canada and it's about ferns, which is so sexy. She fucking loves ferns. ferns My in New God. Brunswick. I'm I mean, Fern Gully is a hot ass movie. Zach. <laughs> <laughs> With his little spray paint can oh and his God. Walkman. Stop it. Oh, and Robin God. Williams as the bat. I'm batty. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know I had that many references up my sleeve? I didn't. I didn't. Well, you're welcome, everyone. Okay. She's in New Brunswick, Canada. She meets Reginald Ruggles Gates. Ruggles. Ruggles. Middle name Ruggles. Nice. The two become engaged two days later. Mm. 
days. They're working on these fern ledges together, trying to date these rocks. Carbon date. I don't know if carbon dating existed. They're dating them, thinking about dating them. But they're not official. <laughs> they're not that serious, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing field work. They're not going steady. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like on and off. They're seeing other people. <laughs> She's oh seeing Reginald gosh. and the Ferns. So Ooh, getting flashbacks of like Harvey and Sabrina. <laughs> but he gave me a bracelet. <laughs> uh, We're going steady. Exactly. Okay. Why do all men give girls bracelets in teen dramas? Because it happens in Twilight. Uh, because bracelets, you can see if they're wearing them. But it's not a ring. It's not a ring. You don't have to guess the size. Oh. And it's not as expensive as a necklace. Oh, I see. <laughs> and it can be twine. I'm just giving you the real, real. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I've been enlightened on jewelry concepts. And if I like Kabbalah, it can just be a red string. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Now I know. Everybody, if your man gives you a bracelet, run. <laughs> Okay. Casey would never. <laughs> Jake got me one like a day ago. It's like it was a couple weeks. Okay. So she's getting her life together. The two are engaged after two days. They're researching ledges of ferns. And then it's April. They met in December. They're married. They return to England. It's April. She publishes her results for her book. She's married in 1911. And then goes to the courts to get it annulled in 1914 or 16. Okay. How can you get something annulled that's three to five years later? Because she's claiming she's still a virgin. Okay. Let's talk about this. Okay. She married him. She maintained her last name at a principal because she's a badass. Uh Uh-huh. She's also a suffragette, and her husband is very opposed to the women's movement. Okay. The marriage is falling apart over money troubles, and to alleviate their money troubles, they have this other guy move in who's a writer and, like, a Tolstoy expert, and um, he is alleviating the financial needs, but they already have problems. This is added pressure, and also she's a super flirty person Mm -hmm. by nature, so her husband doesn't like that. It's adding jealousy. It's adding frustration, so she seeks this annulment. She filed divorce on the grounds that the marriage had never been consummated because she wasn't told ahead of time that her husband was impotent Mm. because she knew nothing about sex. Right. Nothing. Gates left England the next year. He just like up and leaves her husband and he didn't contest the divorce, although he did dispute her claims about it, saying that she was super sexed to a degree that was almost pathological and that he could satisfy the desires of any normal woman. So did they invent nut trucks, truck nuts in that same year? And did he put them on his carriage? (laughs) I just can't believe that they were invented so early on. For carriages. Yeah. In the he, early 1900s. He wanted to make Amazing. sure that they were, the true sagging balls were coming <laughs> behind his carriage. And that was a way for him to tell everyone that he was telling the truth. Right. That Very, he had big balls. And that he was super good at satisfying his wife. Right. Who isn't <laughs> allowed to vote. <laughs> World War One happens, and she's like, "I'm gonna keep studying coal." So that's what she, <laughs> that's what she's doing during World War One. Okay. But 
I mean, somebody's got to do it. So <laughs> every the, her she's like the boys are gone, and she's a studier, but nobody has money for grants because it's the World War, and she's right, in right, England. Right. So she's like, you know, it really fucking pisses me off that I was married for five years and haven't had sex. That's what pisses me off. Right. So she's like, I'm gonna write a fucking book about marriage issues, and this is all around the time of her divorce proceedings and she runs into margaret sanger (laughs) who had left the united states because of the comstock laws right (laughs) yeah she's about to get prosecuted and marie shows margaret her writing and sought her advice on like this sex manual that she's writing she's like i need to tell women and men about sex before they get married i have to tell them Mm -hmm. her book gets finished she offers it to a publishing company they turn it down margaret sanger gave her a whole bunch of advice i mean in the end margaret and marie do become rivals because Margaret is mad that she never got credited for the advice. And Marie's jealous of Margaret's international fame. Yeah. So overall, they really hold this grudge. But they have the same goals. So that fucking sucks. That's stupid. I mean, not stupid. I definitely hold grudges against people who are just like me. So I get it. (laughs) But, like, I just want you to work together. Yeah. It'll be fine. Shake hands. So then she has some friends who introduced her to this guy, Humphrey Vernon Rowe. And he does become her future second husband. But at mm. this point, he's just a rich, rich philanthropist there who like, owns all these businesses. And he's like, oh, my God, these women in the workforce, like, they're such great workers. Uh-huh. But then they have all these babies, <laughs> babies that sometimes they don't want to have yeah and they have to take off for a long time and their bodies are struggling so this man is like it's like enlightened I, <laughs> workforce enlightened it's this is the it's thing it's like alone. so frustrating because it's like <laughs> he's like so close to being there and he's just <laughs> he's on the edge a little short it's like being like man you know what we should have better like you know maternity care in the u.s so these women can get back to work faster it's like Okay, like there are other things going on too. Right, like lots of things. <laughs> but he does decide to make a move. Okay. He says, you know what, Murray, I like this book you wrote. <laughs> and I am going to pay for it to be published. Wow. On my own. Okay, he's there gonna, we go. He's going to pay for the entire Mr. Big Businessman. Gives, gives her this loan. He ends up eventually becoming a big advocate of family planning and wow. birth control. Okay. And the two of them pitch this idea to St. Mary's Hospital. Ooh, How's that going to go? No. Turn it down. Yeah. And of course, they're like, go over to mercy. Only for, <laughs> this is only for married women. No abortions allowed. Like, this is totally like disciplined birth control. And they're still like, get out of here. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk a little bit about this book because it is blunt and i'm gonna recommend it to a couple men in my life (laughs) not producer he's got it down but a couple others okay it says that men and women should have equal sexual pleasure in the relationship Mm -hmm. keep in mind this is the 1900s very early yeah men and women should come into a marriage both knowing about sex i agree yeah she explains all the different sex and sexual acts 
She says that sex should be beyond reproduction. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, a dry vag, bad thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. She says that a husband should focus on the nipples to create the non-dryness. Interesting. Like ahead of time. Uh huh. She says that men should be aware um, because this is leading to an orgasm crisis. <laughs> <laughs> My God, I can't believe you didn't name the cocktail that. <laughs> I wish. I a crisis of orgasm. <laughs> a crisis. <laughs> and she says, I know that like men have this like excessive speed of like one to three minutes, but it takes sometimes 20 minutes to prepare a woman. And like discusses this and the clitoris openly in this book. I'm sorry, what year is this? 19. 19- 10 amazing it is i mean the writing and she's dancing around certain things but the writing is so raw like men and women all over the country are buying this book and they're like oh my god i didn't know i didn't know most people now don't know right it's like why aren't we comfortable talking about this there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of that there's a lot to unpack about that this book yes this book is pretty damn incredible in, like, what it presents to the public. Yeah. Well, and I also like that, like, I think that a lot of time throughout history, it's, like, women have bu- pu- been put in charge of their own pleasure because it's, like, you can't rely on a man to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, why don't we educate everyone equally so that it can also be partially their duty? <laughs> right. You know? She like, talks about how to get to the point of, like, orgasming together in this book. Wow. She's like, here are the different steps you can take to, like, work through this to do this together. That's incredible. I'm sure just, like, this was completely mind-blowing for people. Oh, people are like, this is absurd. I don't think that's my email address. I don't know. You have to ask Dad to help you with this because I really don't know (laughs) what you're doing. Okay. So, I mean, the thing is, the book gets published, and people didn't even think it would be good for people, and it has to go through five issues in the first year, because people are buying this book so much. Oh, my God. So much that she ends up paying this guy back his loan, (gasps) because she's such an independent woman. (laughs) But then they get married. Oh! Oh! I forgot that you said that earlier. (laughs) So this is incredible. All this is incredible. But as she and her husband, with, like, the approval and, like, doing things with Margaret Sanger, are, like, thinking about setting up clinics, one thing they purposely decide not to offer is abortion. Okay. She actually pursued abortion providers and used the police in courts to prosecute them. (gasps) Oh, no. She believed that contraceptives were the preferred means by which families should voluntarily limit the number of offspring. Which, yes. Uh, of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Everyone would love that. Yes. We agree with that. But they're but not also, available. And also, it doesn't have to be the only option. Right. That it's is like, one option that if it was free and universal, oh yeah, my God. that would be great. And also, like, frankly, like, I just also hate this whole thing because it's like, abortion is a form of birth control yes like and it doesn't have to be like i don't know it's just that's very frustrating to me that it's like why don't women just do that and it's like are you in the room where conception happens every single time 
No. You don't know what the fuck is going on no, in there. It's crazy. So shut your goddamn trap about it. And so many, so many young girls and women are told not to take birth control. Yeah. Because they are seen as, quote, slutty yeah. if they do. And it's like, yeah. no, it should be something that's open and available mm-hmm. for everybody at any time mm-hmm. for any reason. Mm-hmm. So. She also advises or requires that the nurses at her clinics are not allowed to impart information about abortion. What? Okay, this to is really making me angry. It is angry. like they should have all the information except this information. Except this information. <laughs> but her private activism is a little bit different. So half of me wonders if she's trying to appease the Catholic Church mm. and half of me wonders if she's trying to just like appease the public because in 1919 there's these letters where she does outline methods of abortion and it's like maybe is she trying to just not get arrested? I don't know. She right. was even prepared in some cases to advocate abortion or as she liked to call it the evacuation of the uterus Mm -hmm. and in her book wise parenthood which is her second book she promoted a method called the gold pin which was a method that could be described as abortion ish okay like like a plan b type thing oh okay so i guess like she's like on this teetering edge where she publicly never said she's pro-abortion. She actually publicly said she's anti-abortion, but I think she was trying to protect herself. Right. Like I, th- I it seems like maybe, maybe I don't want to give her so much credit. Don't because if it she's wasn't. a terrible person yeah, in the future. Yeah. But I'm wondering if she was playing the game of like, I think she's smart enough to play the game. I am going to continue publishing and continue educating people about these topics, then I have to come out against this topic. Right. And again, she, apparently she will get bad later. Yeah, with she gets worse. some bullshit. She gets but, worse. So I don't want to give her too much credit. But, yeah. you know, I also wouldn't put it past her to be like, yeah, I have to be super publicly against this. Like, it's kind of like the whole choosing your battles thing. Like, I think we get to that with a lot of the suffragist movement of mm-hmm. like, that you later... But this now, right. like me now. And that's exactly <laughs> what she's doing. And it's the same era as U.S. suffrage. So yeah. she's literally doing the same thing that all rich white women are doing at this point. Mm-hmm. So Cherry picking their causes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Marriage Love was the name of that first book. And then people, as soon as she writes about having all this great sex, people start writing to her for advice. They're like, yeah, but you want me to have this great marital sex, but I don't want more babies. Right. So how do I keep my husband off me? So <laughs> she also writes this book called Wise Parenthood, which is a book for married people, and it's a manual for birth control, and it is the most inclusive manual of the time. Really? It has diagrams of women's biological parts and how to insert and different types of spermicides and vaginal caps and like how to do this and how to do that 10 editions are printed like immediately and people are like this is scandalous yeah this is scandalous and crazy the following year she condenses it into a small version for the poor people who are stupid (sighs) i'm Big rolling my eyes. Uh, She's like, <laughs> I sold my amazing books to all the rich white people in England. So mm-hmm. now I'm going to send it to the slum. <laughs> so she publishes it in a 16-page pamphlet, hands it out free of charge, 
all these things, sends people into the town to talk to people, and they're all like, we want literally fucking nothing to do with you. <laughs> they don't even have, they're like, yeah, we're reading about this birth control, but A, we don't have the money for it. B, yeah. I don't even have a private bathroom to insert my pissery a, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, my a cervical cap. Yeah. What am I, what am I spread eagling in a communal bathroom? What do you want me to do? Yeah. And it's also like. It's so I, condescending. It's very condescending. And it's also like, I can't even think of, because I'm sure like, okay, I have a question actually. Mm. Were these ones including the stuff about female pleasure? Yes. Okay. Like she is trying. So this one specifically was about the birth control methods. Okay. That's a I'm, great question. I'm curious as to whether she I was don't, like. You're right. I don't think she can. I don't think she condensed her first book. Because I wonder if she was like, no, they don't need. They don't need this information. No, I wonder sounds, if she was like pleasurable sex was for the wealthy. That sounds more accurate. Yeah. She only condensed her second book. Because I think that there's also this uh, attitude that like low income women, I think they're literally seen as like animals mm-hmm. and they're like, no, like they're not even, they're having so much sex. They can't even think about the potential of enjoying it. Right. You know? And it's like, okay. <laughs> right. Like, breed, like stop, bunnies. Yeah. Right? Can like, you stop treating like bunnies, them like rabbits? Right. Like, Exactly. So you're absolutely right. There's a, there is a huge, huge bias that we're mm-hmm. going to talk much more about in terms of working women. But then Marie gets pregnant for the first time. She is a month overdue. <gasps> what? A month, which means a they month. estimated badly. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, she enters this nursing home. All the doctors are clashing on how she should birth. They're not going to let her give birth like on her knees for some reason, which is like the most comfortable for her. She ends up delivering a stillborn child, oh, which no. is terrible. Oh, and the God. doctors are like, well, she must have had syphilis <gasps> and they do tests. And of course she didn't. But, I mean, she's furious. She says, the doctors murdered my babies. She's 38 years old, and she is hugely anti-hospital and doctors from, like, this point forward. Yeah. She finally recovers, and she engages in public speaking and writing letters and giving advice on marriage and sex and birth control. And um, she starts writing a lot, a lot, a lot to people in poor areas and you know her books are like trying to provide reproductive things but (laughs) this is so yucky we're gonna have to talk about eugenics Mm. this is world world war one before world war two so one Mm. thing to note is post world war two the topic of eugenics were very, this is one silver lining of World War II, is that it made the topic of eugenics so disgusting, no one would touch it. Yeah. Because many, many countries were doing things like forced sterilization mm-hmm. pre World War II, mm-hmm. but then it was like they were too scared to be associated with Hitler, so they stopped. Yeah. And it's, like, so annoying to me that people always are, like, that's a Nazi thing. And it's, like, he learned it from us. Right. That's a people thing. <laughs> Let's not <laughs> forget that they got those ideas from a lot of things we were doing here. Katie, never forget the whites. Please. <laughs> never forget. It is. Okay. The Catholic Church is hugely against her. I do want to be clear with that. She has a battle with them for the rest of her life. 
But before we talk about eugenics, I also want to say that she is responsible for the Church of England gradually releasing their stand on birth control. Interesting. So because of that, there are the Anglican, evangelical, Protestant churches Mm -hmm. do promote birth control to their women, where still today, present day, the Catholic faith says that using birth control is a way to put a roadblock in God's will. So that's why the whole idea of Catholic families, they're very large because they are not using, if they are true practicing Catholics, they're not using contraceptives in any way. Even condoms, even condoms that Katie condoms get in the way of God's will. (laughs) So does masturbation. Like what the fuck squirts right out of you. Right. That's like, (laughs) I don't understand. That was a potential baby, Katie potential baby so ridiculous on that teenager's floor oh my god (laughs) hate it okay (sighs) so she initially saw birth control as a means to alleviate the strain of quote excessive childbearing Mm -hmm. but this eventually evolved to full-blown eugenics here are her thoughts on eugenics um a woman named june rose wrote in a biography about her that marie was an elitist an idealist and she was interested in creating a society in which only the best and beautiful should survive. Another view was echoed by another biographer named Glanton. And he said to her, giving out birth control to the poor was far more about eugenic concerns to impend racial and economic births. Her enthusiasm for eugenics and race improvement was in line with many important political figures at the time. She wanted the largest amount of healthy babies and happy children without, you know, detriment to the mothers. The motto of these people was babies in the right places, which is gross. <laughs> Roller coasters. <laughs> Put them there before their necks ready. They- <laughs> Specifically. <laughs> Swaddle them up. See how good your swaddle is. Put them on Don't a Don't worry about the height requirement. They'll be fine. Joker's Jinx exclusively. <laughs> Joker's Jinx. Zero to 60. Woo. I hope that never gets played back to me. <laughs> okay. Joker's Jinx those babies immediately. <laughs> we got to see if they're ready for it. We got to know. Who's going to be the next president? <laughs> I'm sorry. We have to put a joke in with this awful, awful eugenics conversation because I hate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Woo! Her um, aim of birth control was to give married people healthy ways to have desired children. These are words that are literally in her writing. I hate it. And that conception was like all of contraception is a way to get rid of the racially diseased <laughs> is what she said. And racially diseased at that point, at that point meant like people who were sick because of environmental factors, mm-hmm. you know, like tuberculosis and starvation and like shit that happens in big cities, like right. because of overpopulation, which is mm-hmm. disgusting. Or like, I don't know at that point, Jack the Ripper, maybe right. <laughs> like shit is happening in London. <laughs> like shit is going down. <laughs> So, yeah, the post-World War One Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Listen, there are murderers in London at that point. Okay. So, 
Eugenics is supported by people like Alexander Graham Bell, mm -hmm. who went deaf and wanted people to learn to lip read because he was like, if you learn sign language, that's primitive and it's <laughs> enabling people in the future. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Disgusting. I can't believe it. She also advocated for compulsory sterilization to those that she considered unfit parents or people who were mentally or physically unfit or people who were born of mixed race <laughs> if you, wow she really went for it if you were <laughs> she got him <laughs> she's like she's like if you were born of a parent of two separate races you should be sterilized so that those genes aren't passed on so ridiculous. She also encouraged breeding in certain populations. Quote, breeding, like Quote of breeding. thoroughbred yeah. horses. Yeah. Yeah, this is the Westminster dog show. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> what a great looking German shepherd. <laughs> so. House is undercarriage. <laughs> Should he breed? Stick a thumb in his butt. <laughs> See? The problem is, like, okay, so the UK never goes for the they never pass anything on forced sterilization and she says we sterilize people for the betterment of the king the crown the empire because if there's one thing people love it's an empire love it <laughs> so like we got to keep that at all costs lay back and think of the country okay but there are countries that did places like finland agreed Czechoslovakia actually sterilized 90,000 mm. women in the 1970s. 90,000? Yeah, before it was pulled back later that year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Fortunately, like we said, because of the Nazis, this has kind of dropped away, and people are like, that's fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. But she had a long list of supporters, novelists, suffragettes, reverends, you know, she's opening all these clinics and her clinics are run by midwives and they're supported by visiting doctors and she's offering birth control and birth control methods. And all that being said, she did actually open the first instructional contraceptive clinics in the UK. So it's like, you fucking hate her. Yeah. But, like, she's... Her opinions are shit, but she's doing good. Right. Like, there is some part of this that you can salvage something good from. Right. And it's hard because, like, people on the way far right are getting mad at her for this and people on the like way far left are like shut the fuck up about eugenics mm -hmm. but the other side is like you need to stop advocating for things like the gold pin you need to stop advocating for like all these other ways to like prevent pregnancy and now, you said the gold pin was like plan b is it like a pill that they swallow or is it like something you put up inside of i you? couldn't really understand it it was a contraceptive device it okay seems so it's like, going inside i think it's something you put inside of you but it's after, after you get the, the first signs that you're getting pregnant so it seemed more like a plan b to me it's almost like a pop the uterus type deal interesting which well let's be clear <laughs> It's not what Plan B does. No, no, it's, no, no. Yeah. Plan B is a pill. This is not yes. like Plan B. I mean, it stops the conception from happening. Right. But this is, so you think after yes. the kind of, so like a. After you figure out that you're pregnant. Okay. And for, for Plan B, you don't even know you're pregnant yet because we have a different system now. Yeah. It's like, I had sex yesterday mm -hmm. or two days ago, don't want to get pregnant, getting Plan B. Yeah. Can you, because you can stop it. I just right. didn't want people to think that yes. if they took Plan B, they were like bursting their uterus. Yeah. No, that's. <laughs> 
not true. That's why I just in that my head the gold pin. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's what I'm. Th- yeah. Interesting. But it's something where it's like back then you wouldn't know you were pregnant until well after you missed your period. Right. Mul- maybe even multiple times. Right. Whereas yeah. like with Plan B, like most of us are educated enough now to be like, yeah. I had sex. I'm not on birth control. I want to make sure I don't get pregnant. Yeah. You take Plan B. Mm-hmm. So it's very different. But yeah. it's like the first signs right. of the early. This is their earliest form. Yeah. Earliest okay. form of figuring out I might be pregnant. Yeah. Okay. So she starts getting in fights with a lot of male doctors and actually ends up like suing one of them for like a libel. Mm. She's like, I, what you're saying about me isn't true because she never, none of her clinics ever used the gold pin. She just wrote about it in her books as a possibility, but mm-hmm. she was like, it might be dangerous. I don't know. Like, She's she's like, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not going to approve that in our clinics until it's proved worldwide, which mm-hmm. is like, I don't know, a fucking smart thing to do because she's like trying to be right. a smart person. But she did write about it because she thought people should have the knowledge that it exists. Right. So there's this whole court case with this guy named Sutherland. It's a public debate. Everybody's like she's like writing rap battles against him (laughs) he's not responding they all go to court it's a very johnny depp amber heard situation they're like talking shit about each other and she gets asked four questions or to the people in general were the words from the plaintiff complained and true it's like yes were they true in substance in fact like did it happen yes were they fair? No. But she lost the case because the second question was asking the jury if the things were fact. Oh, and they were. They were facts, but they're like, it's not fair that you said that. Like, the things about the gold pin are facts, but, like, they are, they are, the first question was, like, are they defaming the plaintiff, which they were. Right. So it wasn't true what you were saying about the plaintiff. But they were facts about the gold pin. So, and the jury's like, the comments aren't fair. But this guy Sutherland is like, if they say yes to the second question, that they're facts, then I should win. And, of course, the Catholic Church backed him and he got all this money. And then they win the case. So, eventually, on playgrounds around England, you hear this nursery rhyme. Jeannie Jeannie, full of hopes, read a book by Marie Stropes. But to judge from her condition, she must have read the wrong edition. Is that like she's, she's pregnant? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. All over. I thought you were going to say like something. I thought you were going to say like one that I may have heard of. I've never heard of that one. I'm crazy. Glad I didn't stick around. I, all, I wonder, though, if, do kids in the UK know that? Like, do they grow up still hearing that? I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard of it. I would love to it. know. Okay. Very interesting. I thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in 1923, she bought a lighthouse because she's so upset about this court case and needed a distraction. She bought a lighthouse? Yeah. She needed a distraction <laughs> during the court case. And then at some point in between World War One and World War Two, she even sent like um, a love or like a letter about love to Adolf Hitler. <gasps> 
This is this is in between the two world wars. She did later cut ties with him. And she did write in a letter to a friend later about eugenics, which is this is important because she admitted a mistake. She said, I do not think I want to write a book about eugenics. The word's been so tarnished by some people that they're going (laughs) they're going to get my name tacked onto it. So I think. At this point, before World War II, there was, like, positive and negative eugenics. Mm-hmm. She was definitely on the negative side of, mm-hmm. like, she, the things she's saying are absolutely fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. But, I, like, I think it's kind of interesting that she's like, I'm not going to write about this. Because I'm now seeing that, like, the world is going to see it as bad. She didn't see it as bad yet. Oh, so she still didn't see it as bad. I thought that she'd, well, like, she made says, a full 180. She says, I don't want my name tacked onto it. So I think she's understanding Okay. She's starting to get it. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to fully admit like, wow, I I didn't think that it would turn into that. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because I do think that you can admit that you were wrong. And I think that there should be some kind of grace for that. No, I do. You know, and I, I it doesn't seem like she's fully on board with like how wrong it was yet she isn't but i think that like i don't know that she would ever be on board with how wrong it is but i Mm -hmm. also am like proud of her for like openly even writing like yeah i'm not gonna write a book about this because it's not like the cool thing to do right and we talk about this in the helen keller episode who was also a eugenicist and like you know all that stuff and it was like at the time, I think it's important to note that, like, when it was coming out, it was seen as, like, cutting-edge science, mm-hmm. you know? And it is important, I think, to kind of, like, put yourself in that mindset of people like, this is what we figured out through science, through this thing that, like, we are trusting 100%, and <laughs> but also who only, like, affluent white men are a part of. <laughs> well, so, I, like, <laughs> I think it's important too because I think there are a lot of people who have changed their tune on things like stem cell research. Yeah. I think people were very, very, again, like, that's only aborted fetuses, mm-hmm. you know, XYZ, but now people are seeing the value of it. Right. And a lot of people are like, you know what? I was wrong. Yeah. And that's okay. I think it's a great and very important uh, skill to learn to admit that you were wrong. It really is. So after World War II, she travels to East Asian countries to advocate for birth control. Um, During her life, she is, like, really difficult to deal with. But Mm. during the end of her life, she became impossible. Oh, no. Ireland, which is heavily Catholic, banned her books and her films. And she started to have serious paranoia that everybody in the world is trying to ban her, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, which, like, they were a girl. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) For sure. (laughs) But she starts to alienate, like, all her family and friends. Mm. She did end up having children with her husband. And in 1940... Her son wants to get married to his companion, Mae Wallace, and she's the daughter of, like, a notable engineer. She's, like, a great woman, and he announces his engagement, and she attempts to sabotage the union because, get this, she had glasses. No. And she doesn't think that the genes of bad eyesight should be passed on to the next generation. That's how you know she hasn't, like, truly understood that she was wrong. That she was wrong. Right. That is such a crazy hard sign. Yeah. 
She tried to get her husband's support and he's like, get the fuck out of here. And she's like, yeah, but our grandkids are going to be gross. And she cut her son completely out of her inheritance and her life. She and her husband end up separating over this and she fell into a horrible depression. And this is when she publishes all that terrible, terrible poetry she's not good at. She made energy enemies of the church, of the government, of her friends, of her family. And on October 2nd, 1958 at 77 years old she dies from breast cancer at her home in surrey now her legacy is interesting she's commemorated on uh, you know plaques on many walls because between 1903 and 1935 she published a series of paleobiological papers that placed her among the leading half dozen ever paleobotanists in the world her work on coal led to the classification terminology that's still used today. And she wrote a book on ancient plants that is a pioneer in the field. She is a scientific marvel and genius. After her death also, all of her clinics continued to operate. They, they're... They're now existing in 37 countries. There are 452 amazing clinics educating women about birth control in 37 countries because of her. And like, like all that being said, like she also published the first ever comprehensive collection on birth control. So it's like, I fucking hate all of her opinions, but she did so many good things. Yeah. I don't had like, she made it's so hard. It's ugh. like she's one of those people that makes your brain hurt because you're like, how? And it, it's hard because one of the problems is we live in this very like bilateral society. Oh yeah, where it's like you can either be good or bad. You can either be male or female. There's no you can gray either, area. There's no gray area. When in fact there is. Right. Like we have to start admitting that that like some people who do good things also had pretty shitty fucking beliefs. I mean, look at all the founding fathers. (laughs) Literally all of them. Literally all of them. And I think it's harder, though, because we want... We can, I think, also grant passes to people like the founding fathers and men who were in charge, but it's harder for us to grant those passes to women. And I truly believe that that is true. Oh, yeah. And, like, we want to throw the women who had shitty beliefs out with the Mm bathwater, you know, and... We don't because, and I think it's because they're more rare. It's kind of like if you have a diamond with a little scuff in it, you know, you don't want to throw the whole diamond away. Like, come on. It's Mm -hmm. like, because they're so rare, these women who were doing these awesome things because we never knew about them. Right. And they were written out of history a lot of time and they didn't have the rights that they did to expand their career like Marie did. It's hard to justify throwing them out completely but sometimes we do and i feel like this is an example of someone who like i've never heard of her and i think that's because we're like well we just shouldn't talk about her because she had shitty beliefs right and it's like i think we still need to talk about her we need to say like she did some crazy great things yeah and she just also was part of the shitty british elite yeah yeah i don't know i just i think we need to start talking about shitty women we're big advocates very for good things. women on this show. <laughs> or bad things, whatever. Yeah. But, and I think it's why, like, why I like 
our show is that we do talk about all these different like we talked about a fucking murderer last week like a horrible horrible murderer because we don't want to just talk we don't we don't want to cherry pick no the things about history that we like and the women that we look up to Sometimes we have to talk about the women that, like, we may not look up to, but they did some fucking good shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, listen, one time you burnt dinner, but that cake you baked, that was fly. Was <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we're about to get into part two. I we need more cocktails. I need some better story. <laughs> I'll be right back. Bye. <laughs> back we had a little bit of a spice conundrum god i just it was the worst i you know i this cocktail spoiler alert is garnished with nutmeg Mm. and i was sprinkling the nutmeg on top and i was like why does it smell like a taco and of course cumin attack cumin attack (laughs) so i had to dump the cocktail like a whole because that is something like i just will not do you're I'm not, not going to serve me a cumin cock? I can't. I <laughs> cannot. I am not Marie Stopes. I, <laughs> I just, I was like, that's going to taste so bad. I would have drank it. So you I know. know you would have, <laughs> I but would've. I didn't want to do that to you or myself. You could have spooned it out. So I could have, but then it would have messed up the foam. You know, yeah, there's well. like a foam level on this. That's really important mm. to maintain. Okay. So anyways, tell me what I'm drinking. Okay. So this is called Liberté. And it is vodka, pims, lime juice, egg white, and chai-infused orange juice. Well, I saw your tea bags in your uh-huh. orange juice bottle. We both did a lot of infusing. Yes, this we week. did. Look at so us. So I put chai tea bags in yeah. just a little bottle of Simply Orange. Sure did. Sure did. <laughs> and let it sit all day. I just saw that on a recipe online. I was like, that sounds fascinating uh-huh. um so yes yeah, so that's what's in here and then mm. you sprinkle nutmeg not cumin on top <laughs> well cheers. cheers cumin if you'd like mm-hmm. mm. really nice that's really nice i think the chai takes the uh like the sweetness out of the orange juice mm-hmm. which is nice i was expecting to be like overpowered by orange juice mm-hmm just balances it out really nicely. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because I thought for a little bit about putting simple syrup in it as well, but like orange juice is so sweet oh, yeah. that I didn't want to overwhelm the cocktail with sweetness. And like I thought it was going to be really sweet, but it's really well balanced. It is. I don't it's know. I great, really like it. It's a great drink. Mm. And I love a cocktail with egg in it. Oh, yeah. It just makes it so foamy and fun. Mm. I love it. So what do you know about Nor? And yet Khan. So I know she's been on our request list for mm-hmm. a long time and mm-hmm. been requested by a couple people. Like mm-hmm. she's listed a few times. Yeah. Um, and I think, okay, to me, it sounds like a Native American name. I don't like, I don't know that that's true, but to me, it sounds like mm-hmm. more of an ethnic name. And then you mentioned she's in the military and you said Liberté. So t- maybe she's a freedom fighter of some sort. But that's all I know. Okay. Or I think I know. I'm just guessing. Well, this is very exciting. So we're going to get into it. Um, I have to acknowledge my sources. So I got a lot from this, um, like, BBC kind of documentary, which was really cool because it was her nephew mm. who had heard the stories of his aunt 
and then he goes and retraces her steps. Was it about coal balls? No, thank God. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that was cool. So that was like a documentary that like he made, I think, with the BBC. And then there was like this really great like TEDx animated video on her. And really, I got a lot from um, For the Love of History, which is another podcast that like I go to sometimes because whoever runs that show does a really good job. She just tells the story, like you were saying earlier, like so succinctly. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Um, and then, of course, Wikipedia. Okay. Nor Uncia Eniat Khan was born on January 1st, 1914 in Moscow, Russia. Her name is an Indian name that means light among women, which I love. (laughs) Um, She was the oldest of four children born to Hasrat Iniat Khan and Pirani Amina Begum. Uh, But we're going to use her her given name, which was Aura Ray Baker. (laughs) So right off the bat, she has some pretty interesting parents. So are you trying to jump ahead to the O's? (laughs) <laughs> she's yeah. nor but she's or no 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 her mother was or oh okay. this I is see, her I mother see, i see i see I yeah see. so it's also complicated because like her debt like so her name is nor inyat khan and her father is hasrat inyat khan okay. and then her mother is aura ray baker so her father was a descendant of royalty his great-great-grandfather was tipu sultan of mysore so like the sultan of mysore amazing and he came from this very long line of nobles and musicians and i think that that is i didn't i should have looked this up but i think that's like khan is like i think of like a royal name or like an upper class name i think i don't know that for sure no that sounds right so her father like Camilla Khan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So her father was a mystic and a teacher of Sufism, um, which is actually how he ended up in Russia. He was teaching Sufism at the imperial court of Russia in the early 1910s, which means he was probably there with Rasputin and Anastasia. Shut up. Which is unreal. And that's where... Nor was born. Would you would you switch places with her if you had the chance at this point? Nor? Yeah. No. Her dad? Her dad. Hmm. I'd switch places with her mother, who is like, my husband's the Sufi guy. He's the teacher. I'm just here hanging out with... Having a baby in the having palace. Having a baby in the palace. <laughs> uh, I think that would be... Very interesting to be her. In Winter Palace. In the Winter Palace. Very cool. Ah! Um, Okay. So her mother had met uh, Hasran Inyat in New York and had run away with him despite her family's wishes. But it's interesting because they met through her family. So they met through her half-brother, a man named Pierre Bernard, uh, who was also called the Great Um, the Omnipotent Um, and Um the Magnificent. This guy, Pierre, was a pioneering American yogi, scholar, occultist, philosopher, mystic, and businessman. Who That's is, a lot. Let me tell you, I went on a rabbit hole with Pierre, and then I was like, this is not his story. <laughs> is <that laughs> this is not even his story. It's not even his half-sister's story. <sighs> it's her daughter's story. <laughs> That's so crazy. this is her 
half uncle who is the great omnipotent um the magnificent why don't we give people <laughs> titles anymore like that uh they were definitely i think uh self-inflicted titles <laughs> i see so anyways so this guy pierre he ran like a sanskrit school i think in new york there wasn't like a ton Sanskrit's of information like a dead language that's <laughs> yeah. amazing so he like ran this sanskrit school and this is where his half-sister and nor's father met so in new york in new york <laughs> This what? is crazy. And then and then they run away and they move to Russia. I didn't know a good way to like tell this part of the story because it seems so crazy. Their parents were like, well, let them have let let them be free for a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So the two meet, they run away together and begin their life teaching Sufism, which we've talked about before on the podcast. It is a mystical form of Islam that preaches that all life has value, all life is sacred. You know, they have a very deeply rooted, positive-centric belief system. Um, so they're teaching this. Their first home was obviously Russia. Uh, but then when World War II broke out, they had to flee to Great Britain. So they go to Great Britain, but that is not a good fit for them. Nora's father hated Same. their colonialist ways, and he would speak openly against it. And it wasn't just because he was a proud Indian or just because he was just empathetic to, you know, bullshit. Um, <laughs> he had a real personal tie to this. His great-great-grandfather, the sultan, was killed while defending his homeland against the British. So this colonialism, ha- he's like, I am a direct, def- de- like, descendant affected by this. Right, because, like-, like, during World War II, yes, India was, like, technically a colony, so mm-hmm. technically part of the British Empire, but before that, Great Britain had taken over. Yeah. And stole their shit. Exactly. Right. So he didn't like the British. The British didn't like him. They were like, why are you talking about this? Like, you must have some nefarious reasons. So then the British are, like, spying on him and his young family. So (laughs) then they were like, we're getting out of here. And they moved to France when Noor is eight years old. They live in this palatial house about 10 miles outside of Paris in what were described as very idyllic conditions. Noor and her three siblings embraced their parents' pacifist, Sufist beliefs, and they lived a very peaceful life in the countryside. Her father called their house Fasil Mensal, or House of Blessings, which was gifted to them from one of his followers. So he is like, he's a very prominent uh teacher and he's gaining a lot of influential followers and the house soon became a center for sufism and music where people would come from all over the world to learn from him this involved a lot of preaching and a lot of meditation and a lot of music i keep mentioning that because it was very big in the household like her father is always described as a musician and sufist like priest basically um, and she was, so he's like the cantor of the church while yeah. also being the preacher. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. yeah. It's all one for him. Like, mm-hmm. he's like, you can't have 
Sufism and like enlightenment, like without music, like to him, it is like so intrinsically twined. All for one, one for one. Sure. <laughs> um, Nor was especially skilled at playing the harp and playing the piano. Um, as a young girl, she was described as quiet and shy and sensitive and very dreamy. Like she was in her head a lot. But when she was 13 years old, her father passed away suddenly while he was on a pilgrimage in India. His wife, Aura, was extremely distressed and heartbroken. She fell into a deep depression. So Nor had to step up and help raise her siblings. The dreamy, quiet girl had to become a strong parental figure in her household. But even through all this, she was able to excel academically. She ended up studying music at Colette Normale de Musique de Paris, uh, a very fancy French music school. And then she studied child psychology at the Sorbonne. Stop. I know. And had a career writing children's stories that were published in magazines and they would be performed on the radio. And then at the age of 25, she had a book published. 20 Jakarta Tales, which was uh, a translation of some like uh, tales of the young Buddha or something like that. So, oh. yeah, so like she is doing a lot. And then it was later discovered that she had also written a retelling of Homer, but unfortunately it was not published until after she died. But I just think it's wild that like I, you would assume that like growing up in a hippie household, kind of like that, like she wouldn't be interested in things like psychology and like, you know, like Akuna Matata. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but she had like this very strong career for herself that also involved her creative side, which I think is really hard to do. Um, but this was all about to be thwarted by the start of World War II. German troops were soon in Paris and Nora and her family thankfully got on the last boat of refugees headed for Great Britain. Once they were in relative safety, Nora and her younger brother decided that they needed to make a really difficult decision. They had to forgo their strong pacifist beliefs and they had to fight for the Allied army. They were like, we like, they're like, yes, we believe that like violence is not the answer. You shouldn't fight, but also people are fighting. We can't change that. So like, what can we do to help the good side win? Right. Like the war is happening. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so they knew that they were like, all right, we do have some definite no-nos. Like we can't fire guns. I can't kill anyone, but we want to help in some way. So her brother, um, Vilyath, uh, signed up for the Navy and he became a minesweeper. So he was detecting, uh, explosives and Noor joined the women's auxiliary air force under the name Norma Baker, which I think was an odd to her mom's name. And this was to, she joined under this name to kind of better fit in with her British counterparts. I think that when she was a kid, she remembered that she was like, oh, British people don't like Indians. So like, I have to kind of conform. Uh, She was an aircraft woman, second class, and she was trained as a wireless operator. There wasn't much expected of her in the beginning, um, but soon she was picked for something very exciting the SOE or the special operations executive or as it was more commonly known Churchill's secret army. I feel like we've had a couple of ladies involved we have. in this. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Virginia Hall. Yes. Who there's a movie about Nora and Virginia Hall is it's like about them both and another woman. I oh, couldn't remember who the other right. one was. And Virginia Hall's famous screen printed leg with the uh, Maryland yes. flag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the reason that Nora was chosen, um, most people surmise, is that because she was fluent in French and she was very familiar with the ins and outs of Paris. And obviously they were like, we need to get Paris back. Like, as the Nazis were totally in. And that's a very big stronghold in Europe right now. Yeah. And Coco Chanel is like, they're living yeah, it up. She's like, I love this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody kill her. Safe <laughs> don't. She was fine. Uh, she was also singled out because she was exceptionally good at Morse code. I don't know if this is true or not, but in the movie about her, she was like, Morse code just sounds like music to me. So it just like made sense in her brain, which I never thought about it that way. And I was like, Huh. I feel like I musicians would be great at They would that. be really good at it. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a little hesitant about joining, but she accepted the position, even though she knew it was going to be really, really dangerous. So in February 1943, she began her three-month-long spy training. The reviews on her were not good. <laughs> She's a bad spy? <laughs> they said she was emotional with a vivid imagination. She's childlike. She's clumsy. She had an unstable and temperamental personality. She was afraid of weapons. And she was not overburdened with brains. I mean, could you read that again at my eulogy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at my eulogy. They were like, how is she going to make it as a spy? She won't even hold this tiny gun. Like, this is not a right match. Like, no, no, get her out of here. Same, 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 same. But two people were not about to overlook her. Vera Adkins and Maurice Buckmaster saw her potential. Vera They're Adkins? Like, yes. She's super famous. Is she really? Yeah. I, my kids have done a picture of her on her really? on history month. Oh, yeah. She's really cute. Yeah, Your Adkins is. is very famous. So we got to do her for V. Yeah, we probably should. Damn. <laughs> we got to fill in the hard letters. Mm-hmm. Q is coming up. Somebody Ooh. tell us what to do. Shit. So they were like, I think that that's actually the type of person we should be looking for as a spy. Someone that you wouldn't think is a fucking spy. <laughs> Somebody who's like, so like, yeah. So they're like, it's we shaggy know. from the Scooby-Doo situation. Exactly. Right. So they were like, we know that she was a wireless operator. So like, let's have the, the official code guy of the army come in and like specifically assess her. So he comes in and he's like, I literally wrote the secret codes for the army and she is the most fluent person in the Morse code and like our system that I've ever seen. Like he was like, she just fucking gets it. So they're like, okay, great. Beliefs confirmed. She's going to be a great spy. She just doesn't look like the other people that we have hired as spies. How open of them. I know. So she became a wireless operator for the spy system. And she would have to travel with her radio transponder thing. I can visualize Which it. is not small. <laughs> and her job was going to be to send super coded or coded super secret messages back to the UK from the French resistance. How secret though? Super secret? Very secret. So she's... The most secret. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, this job was so dangerous that she was about to head into... 
the life expectancy for a wireless operator was six weeks. Stop. Her pseudonym was Jean-Marie Renier. Her radio handle was Nurse. And her code name was Madeline. That's like the life expectancy for a lime sitting in my kitchen. Right, exactly. <laughs> and on the next full moon, she was to be dropped in, into enemy territory. As a werewolf. Mm -hmm. One source said that she was the first woman to be airdropped behind enemy lines. Uh, which is super cool if it's true. I don't know if it was. Um, <laughs> I feel like, didn't What's-Her-Face with the heels Nancy and the Wake. baker? Yeah. Nancy I don't know Wake. if she was the first, though, but she made quite an entrance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she loved parachuting in heels and lipstick. <laughs> in France. Um, but by the time that Noor landed in Angers, France, she was already in extreme danger, but she didn't know it yet. The man who organized this whole operation in France was a double agent. And within seven days of her arrival, he had given up the entire SOE operation in Paris that was called Prosper. That's so shitty. The entire office, the whole system, they were all fucking arrested. So he Benedict Arnold them. He did. Thankfully, Nor was not one of them. <gasps> she wasn't at the office that day, I guess. I don't know. Or maybe, or maybe it was because she was so her. new. Oh, too I, new. I think she was too new. I think that he, I think he was just like, oh yeah, like here's the office. Everybody should be there. And Nor wasn't. So now she is completely alone in Paris. She is the only wireless operator left. Which meant she's, and like normally there was six of them. So now she's doing the work of six people for this entire spy network by herself. So she's a woman. Yeah. One man was like, oh my gosh, this just happened. I know that Nora's there. So he goes to her and he finds her and he goes, look, I'm going to get you on the first plane out of here. Don't worry. And she was like, no, I'm the only one left. <laughs> I need to stay and help because... I, it obviously took three months to train me. There's no time. I need to be here. So she refused safety and she secured the radio transmissions between London and Paris all by herself for the next couple months. So her radio transponder was disguised as a suitcase that she carried by hand. No wheelie suitcases at this point. <laughs> And it weighed 33 pounds. So it's not like the easiest thing to handle. And you had to be careful to act like it just contained a bit of clothes because if someone saw you with a really heavy suitcase, they'd be like, excuse me, what is that? Um, of her newfound position, a general described it as the principal and most dangerous post in France. Because think about this. The only thing secure about her messages is that they are coded. The Germans can detect that someone is transmitting signals from Paris to the UK. So now, with all the other ones they know were arrested, there's only one person transmitting signals, and it's Nor. So they are hunting one person instead of a whole operation. It's the most dangerous game, Yeah, one might say. To give you a picture of this, Typically, she would be able to be on the radio for about 20 minutes without getting detected. Now that she was alone, that was down to five minutes. Because by the time they got her signal and found out where she was, 
she was like, all right, I got to bounce. I, I, she had to find a new location. And she's walking around. From. Just being she's crazy. walking around with her suitcase. <laughs> because, of course, you know, as soon as she started doing it, they would start tracking her. And so for months, she snuck around Paris, evading the Gestapo and far exceeding that six-week life expectancy. In a letter she wrote back to London, she shockingly described this time as one of the best in her life. <laughs> she said, I am so happy doing this work. And I think it's because she felt like she was finally proving that you can make a difference in war and also not hurt anyone. You can be a pacifist. And also one historian pointed out like this experience probably opened up a whole new side of herself that she didn't know existed. I think she felt liberated by the whole thing. You know how like sometimes you feel like, God, I just want to find that one thing that I'm actually like super fucking good at. And then she did which was being a radio transponder spy. <laughs> it was only that easy. Peg Hole found it. Found it. During her tenure, she helped track and transport supplies to the French resistance. She monitored Nazi activity and sent reports back to London. And she arranged safe passage back to, you know, across the border for allied soldiers. So that's what she's doing. She's not just like doing like just like being like hey i'm having a good day like she's like hey they took down like x amount of people from like this safe house and you know transported them here and like this is where they were today and the truck needs to go here because there are nazi outposts here like she is giving the most crucial information to make sure that what's left of the french resistance can stay alive which is crazy unreal <laughs> it's unreal i just keep thinking like Women are 50% of the population and mm -hmm. they fucking didn't use us during the war or they nope. didn't want to and they had to, yeah. but not enough. And that kind of helped Nora out actually because the Nazis weren't really looking at women like that. They yet. were looking for a man. They were looking for men. I mean, in Russia, I know she's at this point working for the UK, but like Russia used women way mm -hmm. more during the war and then immediately after during the space race uh -huh. we're talking about the uk and the united states who yeah. like was refusing women any of these positions yep. that's exactly right Ugh. now she did get stopped a few times but nor could always talk her way out of it in one instance on a train they asked her to open up her suitcase with her transponder and she goes Oh, this? Oh, my gosh. You're going to be so excited to learn about this. She goes, this is a film projector. She opens it up for these military personnel. And she goes, this is where the slide goes. This is where this goes. And she's like, it, she's almost making it so boring that they're like, okay, whatever, lady. Like, she's going into such detail. They're like, I don't actually give a shit about your film projector. <laughs> and she got away with it. And then another time, she was putting a radio transmitter antenna on top of her house <laughs> and they stopped her and she goes, and they're like, what is that? And she goes, Oh, this, she goes, gotta admit it guys. I love music. I love listening to the radio. So I just wanted to hear the music better because I love it so much. Don't you guys love music? And they're like, we do love music. And she charmed them so much that they ended up helping her finish, set up the radio tower on her house. Stop. But unfortunately, the new Nor didn't sit very well with everyone in her very small circle at this point. 
in October 1943, a woman, woman, woman named Renee Gary turned Nor in to the Gestapo oh. for just a few hundred dollars, which was apparently like a tenth of what they were initially offering for someone to turn her in. Shit. Why? Uh, just for the money? Nope. Even worse. She did this because she was in love with a man who she suspected liked Nor. <gasps> Stop! So all of this maneuvering, everything she had been working for, it was all taken down by a jealous woman. So now she's in the hands of the Gestapo, and she's already, like, racking her brain for an escape plan. She asks them if she can take a bath. They say, okay. She jumps out the bathroom window. <laughs> Unfortunately, she's caught pretty quickly. And the interrogation commenced. The guy asking her questions was famous for getting male prisoners to talk, not through torture, but by befriending them. But the first thing Nora said to him was, I don't trust you, and I don't like you. And that was pretty much all she said to him. Later, when the head of the Gestapo was interviewed about Nora, he said that she showed great courage and they got no information whatsoever out of her. But what they did get was her suitcase radio transponder and all of her notes with all the codes. So they're sending messages back to the UK as her, which then led to them sending people right into the, their hands. And it led to the deaths of so many more spies and so many more people in this network. I just like, I hate this woman so much that she did this because over it's like, like some fucking jealousy that this boy you liked kind of liked her. I know it's so upsetting. It's really upsetting. I mean, did anybody discuss a threesome? <laughs> like, honestly, I would bet that Noor had no idea that this guy even fucking existed. Right. That the anger that oh. it's not like they were having a relationship and she was like, I liked him. She just kind of suspected that he liked Noor. It's like, can you look at the bigger picture here? Okay. <laughs> like, we're in Nazi-occupied France. There's a war going <laughs> There's on. There's an actual world war going on. So upsetting. So then Nora made her second escape attempt. Uh, she snuck a screwdriver away from one of the guards. And with two other prisoners, they were both in kind of like rooms next to each other in this house in Paris. And they would sneak this screwdriver out of the window to each other. And they were, like, scraping at the bars on their windows. Like, they're Shawshank Redemptioning. They're Shawshank Redemptioning it. And they eventually got the bars loose enough that they could push them. Great. So they push the bars out. They escape. They get on the roof of this Paris house, and they are running away. And then an air raid siren went off. And which means that, you know, like, everyone's at high alert. Bombs are coming. Bombs are coming. And the first thing that the prison guards do is they're like, all right, check on all the inmates. That's the first thing they do in a, in an air raid siren. And they weren't there. So they were caught fairly quickly. This time, sick of her shenanigans, they sent her to Dachau concentration camp. Oh, they labeled her Nacht und Nabu, which meant night and fog, which was, a code name for prisoners who were most dangerous. And here she wasn't just questioned. She was tortured and put into solitary confinement for, I think, 10 months. 
And because she still wasn't talking and she obviously was not going to be of any use to them, they chose to execute her. She was executed along with three other SOE women on September 13, 1944. She was just 30 years old. They were shot by a firing squad, and the women were reported to have held hands during the ordeal. Now, for quite some time, no one knew what had become of Noor. The SOE was used... um, Sorry, the SOE was used to spies getting captured and going missing. And, you know, that was, I mean, again, the life expectancy for her job was six weeks. So there were so many people going missing and they didn't know where they were that, like, it was really hard to kind of keep track of all of them. And once the war ended, everyone was just so distracted by the end of this awful war that people forgot to look for some of the missing folks. And someone like Nor, they weren't really that concerned about finding like she was a secret anyway yeah they were just presumed dead and life continued on for those who had survived but one woman was not satisfied with that vera atkins she had been in charge of the female agents that were sent to france and she was like i'm gonna find out what the fuck happened to my girls good so she followed a trail that led her to a concentration camp where four women had been executed via lethal injection one of the women was not named, so she was like, that must have been Noor. The description sounds like her. It's got to be her. So for a couple years, that was her story, that she had died in this other camp by lethal injection. Okay. Then her brother actually discovered the story of her being executed by gunfire with the other women at Dachau from a person who said he was a guard at the concentration camp. But then... <laughs> 14 years later, after this guard's confession, another person came forward and said, I need to set the the record straight. That's not what happened. Wait, so she didn't get executed by firing squad? Okay. Kind of. So this man was a fellow prisoner, and he was like, they are trying to make this scene, like this whole scene look a lot (laughs) nicer, which is hard to do, than it actually was. Okay. He said, when I was there, he goes, I saw from the very beginning, Nora was singled out because probably because of her dark skin and her position. So he goes, she was tortured to death. <gasps> he said, I saw it. This guard named, you know, Rupert or whatever. He goes, he beat her nearly to death out in public and then just shot her in the back of the head. He goes, it was not this, like, routine thing with all the women coming out and holding hands. It's he not goes, like a beautiful story of a firing squad where there's courage and, no. like, faith. No, she was already basically dead when he shot her in the head from his torture. But he did shout, he did give one more piece of information that would become a big part of Nora's legacy. Right before she was killed... By a gunshot wound in the head, she shouted, Liberté. Which, there is something very impactful about, like, this woman has been just brutally assaulted. And she uses her last word to shout liberty, which I think is such a sign of hope, you know, that, like, I think she just never let go of. 
After her accomplishments and her bravery were discovered, she was awarded the Croix de Guerre and the George Cross. Uh, she was only one of three female recipients of the George Cross from World War II, so it is a great honor. In 2011, $100,000 was raised to place a bronze bust of Nora in London. In 2014, she was put on a stamp, and in 2018, there was a campaign launched to get her put on the 50-pound note. Her story may have made or stayed relatively unknown if it wasn't for one woman in particular. Sharabani Basu is an Indian historian and journalist who started researching Indian women in World War II and became fascinated with Noor's story. She not only wrote a book about Noor called The Princess Spy, The Life of Noor Inyat Khan, but also established a trust in her name. This nonprofit helps keep Noor's memory alive by offering educational material for schools, and it also helps promote Noor's message of peace and nonviolence. And that is the story of Noor Inyat Khan. That's amazing. And it's hard. I was having a hard time with this because a lot of this stuff was like kind of pieced together because unfortunately we just didn't know a lot, you know, like of people who survived, we get their firsthand account, you know, and we get to really hear what went down. But there's a lot of, I feel like missing pieces, unfortunately, with Nora's story. Well, I, I mean, and it's hard because this whole time I'm picturing her as the British operative, but she's mm -hmm. not. No. She does, like you're saying, have this dark skin and she is othered by everything mm -hmm. that she shouldn't be othered by. Yeah. I don't know. I, I felt really inspired by her, but also like really saddened by like the fact that she was just given up on so quickly. I know. Yeah. It's really upsetting. All right, so now we need to talk about these two women together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. You know what's funny is I think these two women actually had pretty similar, like, childhoods. I felt like they came from these, like, well-to-do families with very forward-thinking parents. <laughs> they did. And, I, okay, so I'm looking at my phone right now, not out of disrespect, but no, I wanted fine. to show you that Eliza has been both of these women no. on our Her Story so swipe one way. She well, she was Vera Atkins. She yeah. wasn't Nor, and then she was Maurice Stokes. Oh my another gosh! Woman. So like these, the, the women we're talking about are like very prominent, featured, women. very famous, featured very, women. <laughs> but you're right; they are. They had wealthy families. They and I think that's why we know about them. That's yes. why they're so prominent. Is because like regardless of the fact of how their stories ended. People in society weren't going to let them just fall away. Yeah, exactly. And I also just think that it gave them so many more opportunities in life, too. You know, like, they both were able to, you know, pursue higher education. You know, they were just allowed a little bit more mobility in life. And I also think that because their parents were a little more forward-thinking, they could also think outside of the box for themselves. You know, like... Nor was so concrete in her beliefs of like, I'm going to do the right thing, but I am not like, here are my personal guidelines. Like it's one source said that like, she didn't even take a pistol with her. Like she didn't even take a, a, a gun with her on her mission. Some sources say that she did. So I don't know if that was just like embellishment because she was so such a pacifist, but, <laughs> but you know, I just felt like both of these women were allowed to 
think outside the box from their upbringing. Well, yeah. And, you know, they both had this idea that, like, they wanted the, quote, good side to win. But they had a different idea of what the good side was. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that Noor had such a great, like, tether to the earth. Yeah. Of, like... World War II is such a turning point for so many people. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that Marie was pushed by World War II. Yeah. I do think that her beliefs changed because mm -hmm. of it, but I don't think that she was willing. She wasn't she wasn't willing and old enough and been like she was too old, I guess, and too experienced to like make that change. Mm -hmm. But Noor was like directly affected by the Nazi army. She was in a concentration camp. Meanwhile, years earlier, Marie had sent letters to Hitler about eugenics. Yeah. That's like they're in direct opposition to each other on like what you should believe a person should be able to do. Yeah. Well, and I think also this brings us to an interesting point because we're talking about them both kind of growing up in privileged households, but like we know, like we can't just look at privilege. They're colorized things. households. Yes. And we talk about how like when Nor went and joined the women's auxiliary force in the air force, she changed her name because she was like, Oh, I know what being in Great Britain feels like. And it feels like to me, I'm not welcome. I'm not wanted. So she had to kind of change her behavior. And I was thinking about that with how it was probably a lot easier for Marie to move in the world. Like she was a partier. She was flirtatious. She's doing all these things. And she can be a little more vocal than Noor because she has more social cachet there's a lot more forgiveness for someone like her and you know Nora's father is doing the same thing that marie's doing speaking his mind being like this is messed up this isn't okay and he is being put on surveillance by the british government right and what, <laughs> what marie can do is her second husband is a super rich philanthropist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so she can say whatever the fuck she wants without yeah. social like backlash for the most part like yeah people are speaking out against her but like she's like you can't touch me i'm yeah. a white woman i have money mm-hmm Exactly. Find another way. But it's also interesting if we think about the transmission of information because they're both kind of doing that too, but in very different circumstances. Nor is in Paris giving information that the army needs to make next steps in this giant world war. And then we have Marie who's like, women need to know this information about their sexual health because I didn't. And I think it's interesting how we think of information because Nora's information will be totally use useless to us now. Like <laughs> no one needs to hear where they were on this date now because like, you know, they aren't there anymore. Right. But Marie's information is so, it's still useful. And yet we also have someone who I mean, Marie lived a lot longer than Noor, and we also got to see how that information is now tainted by someone who didn't age well with history. Right. Which is really tough. I think also the giving of information is so, like, dependent on the people who are mm -hmm. accepting it. And yes. I think that Noor opening up her suitcase and then being like, we don't give a shit about your film projector. Yeah. Is the same way that Marie was like, 
let me show you how to work a clitoris. Yeah. And people are like, eh. No, no We don't you. need to know that about women's sexual pleasure. Like, yeah. that's not on our list of things to do. We were looking for a spy. Right. And it's just, like, it's frustrating. I think that men look at women like that mm-hmm. because if Nor had been a man in that train with mm-hmm. that suitcase – he would have been detained. Absolutely. And and like if another man had written a book about female sexual pleasure, so many guys would have been like, oh, I see that this could be better for me as well yep. if it's carried out in this way. Yep. But men were writing that women aren't supposed to have that sexual pleasure. Yep. So we are still in a society where sitcoms are writing shows about women having headaches instead of wanting <laughs> to have sex. Yeah. We are still living in the backlash of Victorian society sexually. Yeah. yeah, we absolutely are. And it's just like women like like Marie were like, why? Yeah. Why? <laughs> it makes no sense. Well, and it's interesting too because I think it brings me to this thought I was having during your story where it's like we take these kind of idealist philosophies like pacifism and eugenics And those two things, although like very like diametrically opposed, obviously, I think what both of them are doing is ignoring the human condition. It's like, yes, would pacifism be great? Of course. Of course. I don't want anyone to be fucking fighting ever. I want there to be peace. I want there to be nonviolence. But also you can't just do nothing in the face of violence and evil. Of course. Like. And I think that's a problem in how we react to things nowadays. It's like, oh, well, like, you know, yes, like we're, you know, slaughtering young men, like police officers are slaughtering these young black men. But like the answer, like you can't get upset about that. Like that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You know, we're trying to police their behaviors. But and I think that eugenics is also something that's like, oh, no, this is like big society problems we can just fix you know it's like simplifying these big issues of like no like you fix these societal issues by just like controlling people's sexual behavior it's like it's if like, poor women what? just had less babies yeah, then everything would be, would be less, fixed. the less men for police officers to kill and it's like if people just didn't fight then everything would be better it's like what like i don't know it's just a lot of that to me is like you are not acknowledging that people are flawed and they think differently and sometimes like these are not the answers there is no easy fix to these big societal problems you know it can't just be one thing and you know I don't know I just thought there it was really interesting looking at their two kind of like central ideologies and I mean also that you know in the case of like like eugenics saw it as a fix to a societal problem, mm-hmm. but it's like a lot of things aren't a problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not a problem. There are mixed race people, right? It's not like a it's, problem that I need glasses. Yeah, It's not a problem <laughs> that like, you know, like poverty is obviously a problem, but it's not a problem that people that live in poverty have children. Right. Yeah. Like the problem is that we're not, supplying universal health care so that these women can have birth control and not mm-hmm. providing safe information mm-hmm. so that women of color or women who are poor feel safe asking questions right. to actual doctors. Like those are the problems that mm-hmm. you're not addressing. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's just very interesting stuff with these 
two ladies. <laughs> Political, interesting, and uncomfortable. Ooh, Welcome to right. our show. That is it. That is it. Are you ready to toast? I am. Who would you like to toast this evening? So all I was thinking about why I did research this week is that some heroines are not good people. Yeah. And what's important is how we use their accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Because I think that she created a lot of things that are being used for good. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should... Like you said in the first half, I don't think we should throw the entire person away. Mm-hmm. Like cancer, cancel culture is bad for that. It like is. Yeah. She did some amazing things and let's use her amazing things and also criticize her shit. Yeah. So we toast, can do both toasting to being half ass on people. Yes. Let's be halfway Cheers. on everyone. <laughs> Ah, the problem with pedestals. We talk about it all the time. Yes. The problem with pedestals. Okay. I am going to toast the women who don't make it out alive. I think that especially with World War II, we do not like to talk about the people who were killed like this. You know, we like to talk about the heroes. We like to talk about people that evaded the Nazis at every turn and like, you know, did it and like whatever. And it's like, you know, we just had Memorial Day talking about fallen soldiers, the people who did not come back. And I think that it is so important to remember that, like, they all had individual stories that are all now lumped into one thing. Mm. And those people meant something to someone. I mean, her nephew went on this whole journey, just like like he went to the spot where she was executed. He stood there and he was like, this is unbelievable. Like, I just want to toast the people who survive and the people whose families cared about them. Yeah. So cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Oh, wait. People who didn't survive and the people and their families who cared about them. That's what I meant to say. But also the people (laughs) who survived. We can cheers them too. Mm -hmm. Maybe both. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I I know we don't do this often, but I do want to promo my source material. Because just dig a history podcast. They are absolutely everything we aren't. Mm -hmm. They're well-educated, very succinct. They Mm -hmm. don't have a lot of conversation. They read from a script. So it just, like, when I was looking for this episode, because I, like, Googled, like, I was struggling to find personal accounts of her life. So I was, like, Googling, like, who has done some in-depth research on Marie Stokes so I can figure out what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. And... Their episode came up, which is great. That means they're tagging everything correctly. Good for Mm -hmm. you guys. But I scrolled through a lot of their other episode titles, and it was shit I was, like, really interested in. Yeah. But you know how sometimes, even with our podcast, it's not a criticism of other people. Like, you click on it, and they talk about bullshit for the first 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. which we do. Oh, of course. Um, They were just, like, straight to the point. There you go. Told me the story. I got the research done in, like, an hour instead of three. (sighs) You know, I didn't have to, like, scroll, like, click 30 seconds ahead, 30 Mm -hmm. seconds ahead, 30 seconds ahead. Um, It was just really nice because when you love a podcast, you love the banter. Yes. But I wasn't in it for the love of it. You weren't in it for the host. I needed (laughs) to know about Marie Stokes. And they, they killed it. Perfect. I love that. Um... I am going to recommend a book I just finished, Molly Shannon's memoir, Hello, Molly. So I think I've been talking about this. because you I've haven't been, finished it yet. But I didn't finish okay. it yet. And it was just so 
good. And it really is a memoir to me of like her and her father. Cute. Um, Cause like right off in the beginning of the book, um, her family was in this horrible car accident when she was a kid. It killed her mother and her baby sister and her cousin. And so growing up, it was just her older sister and her father in her life. Mm. And her father was an alcoholic. So it's a lot about like, you know, we talked today about how people are, you have to take the good and the bad. And this book is such a perfect example of that because she's like, my dad was the best person ever. I love him so much. I wouldn't have had my career if it wasn't for him. But also he was a horrible alcoholic who was like not good to us. And I had to be like an adult as a young kid and it sucked. And like, I think her book totally encapsulates how your parent can let you down, but you also love them so much. You know, we just have to stop painting people as either 100% good or 100% bad. And I also love that she's very honest with the ways that her dad disappointed her. You know, she was talking about how, like, she was on SNL. She brought her dad to New York, and then he showed up drunk, and he was, she was like, I thought you were sober. Like, you've been in AA for years. And he was drunk. And she was like, I was so mad at him. She was like, I put him up in a hotel. It's like, you can't stay with me, you know? Yeah. And, like, <laughs> and then she figured out it was about something else, but it's just... It's a delightful memoir. I finished it fairly quickly. It's not very long. And I just loved it. And I love Molly Shannon. I think she's wonderful. She is. She's very funny. Yeah. And, and very, very fun. Yeah. And, and it's also like just heartbreaking, some of the stuff that happened to her. So yeah. I love it. So hello, Molly. Go get it. It's so good. And it just came out. All right. Well, thank you for listening. We love <laughs> you so much. We love you. Uh, and if you love us, join us on Patreon. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and it just helps pay for this chai infused orange juice and everything else. I ran out of vodka this week, Mm -hmm. so I do need to get more of that if you wouldn't mind helping out. Um. (laughs) And then uh, we would love a rate and a review. We would love for you to like and comment on things on all of our social medias. It's wonderful. We like you there. Next week's OP. Oh, next week is OP. Um, And if you have any corrections about MN... (laughs) let us know let us know we don't care you know we don't we want to have this be a community of open feelings and you know be like hey like she didn't die in 1944 she died in 1943 but also we talked about like some really hard topics tonight so that's fine too like tell us if we were off the mark on eugenics yeah please do (laughs) (laughs) but yeah we're always so grateful for feedback because we're just too... It just means somebody's listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number one. Um, so we love you. Find us everywhere. And, all, and you know, join us on Cocktail Tuesdays or Tipsy Tuesdays everywhere. We post the recipes and they're super fun. And mm-hmm. you can take the quiz, figure out who made what cocktail. Yeah, find it on the story. Um, yeah. And we love you. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women... Think that cheese nips can pass for cheese it. Oh, they cannot, though. God, it's such a mistake. But they really make history. Goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening 
to her story on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.